Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Konak Bhandari, and this week we're discussing India's space sector. For decades, India's space program has been widely recognized for its ability to produce cost-effective space technology, slowly but surely driving down the costs of missions across the board, including orbital missions, lunar missions, and even Martian missions. However, this has been largely driven by ISRO, India's National Space Agency. Realizing the need for increased integration of the private sector into the Indian space story, the Indian government over the last few years has introduced a wide range of key reforms in the Indian space sector. In this episode of Interpreting India, we'll take a closer look at India's space sector and its key developments. What are these space reforms everyone speaks of? How close are we to seeing the next Indian SpaceX or Blue Origin? And what is on the wish list for private space companies in India? To help us navigate some of these questions, we have with us today Narayan Prasad Nagendra. Narayan is co-founder at SatSearch.co, a global marketplace for space with the mission to consolidate the global space industry supply chain, fostering increased collaboration, state-of-the-art development, and transparency within the market. He also serves as a partner to the Space Park Kerala, a Government of Kerala initiative to develop a space economic hub in India. He founded his first company, Dhruv Space, in 2012, a new space company based out of Bangalore, India, with a vision to lead the privatization of the spacecraft industry in India. Narayan, welcome to Interpreting India. Delighted to have you with us. I wanted to start off by asking you, that you're the co-founder of this company called SatSearch, which is a marketplace essentially for various players in the space ecosystem. Essentially, it's for a global marketplace. So you have a good overview of all the enterprises at different stages of the supply chain. My question is, if we were to sort of, you know, transplant this to the Indian ecosystem as well, what has been your findings so far regarding any mapping exercise you may have done or just generally given your experience in the sector? Uh, you know, what is the nature of Indian enterprises? Are they the nuts and bolts manufacturers which sort of, you know, get an outsourced mandate from ISRO? Or are we likely to see over the next five, 10 years, Indian players who might possibly take on the likes of SpaceX and Blue Origin? Right. So thank you, firstly, for having me here, uh, Konark. And uh, this is always an interesting topic because it's a question of uh, how do you build a sustainable and scalable space economy that uh, makes the space industry in India look like the IT industry or the biotech industry in the future, right? So from an Indian perspective, when you study the supply chain, uh, there are about 150, I would say, core group of suppliers that work with uh, ISRO in one fashion or the other. And uh, there's about 350 other suppliers who are doing uh, all sorts of other uh, work that may not be super critical, but still contribute to the space program in one way or the other. Uh, but again, uh, if you look through to the 150 core suppliers and the way that they were developed uh, starting from the late 60s and the early 70s, I mean, at that point of time, the risk appetite was very low and India did not have a mature roadmap to have tens of satellites or you know tens of launches every year. It only happened in the last 10 years that we had so much demand up and coming. And the risk was also quite high because of sanctions and everything else. So which meant that the development of the industry in India was based on the fact that industry could be somebody who worked with ISRO 
with manufacturing support and services support. And that's been the legacy of how the industry has been built for the last uh, 50 years, which means that a lot of the industry in India have pretty good infrastructure when it comes to space manufacturing, pretty good uh, infrastructure when it comes to people who can understand quality control and uh, you know working with uh, space-specific requirements. But then uh, primarily the designs come from ISRO itself. And once they are kind of de-risked by ISRO doing their own internal tests or flying them for the first time by taking the risk, they then uh, hive off these routine things to be manufactured by the industry. And that's the case with, for example, you know, if you even if you take something like engines, for example, take Gotrich or Valsenlager or even the bigger players like LNT or so on, most of them are uh, sitting on top of uh, ISRO IP at the end. Uh, a Godrej, for example, will produce these engines and they've successfully done that for, I think, over 100 engines now. And But then if you ask them to design an engine, they may say, this is not really for us. Uh, we can uh, produce an engine if you give us a specification and they have mastered the processes, over 200 different processes that you'll probably need to actually realize an entire engine. But then uh, you know, they're not into design of a new generation engine or so on. But then there are some companies, I would say, few of them uh, who are really uh, invested into the IP of the whole ecosystem and trying to then uh, build full products. And uh, that's where I see a lot of the hope because, uh, I mean, companies like uh, Accord Systems, uh, you know, Sankhya Labs, and a few more of the new space companies that are coming out uh, they really are uh, invested into the IP generation so that you would want to not have only one customer in, as in the government because you then tie to only them and their processes and their uh, projects and so on. But if you have design knowledge and you have productized whatever you're doing, then obviously you can tailor that design to any spacecraft and any mission. And and that's where the future is uh, at the end. Uh, whoever needs to wants to grow to an international market, uh, at the end, that, that's the feature that they'll have to work around with. And uh, if you look at some of these companies that I mentioned, they have a core product. Uh, in case of Accord, for example, it's a GPS system. And uh, in case of some other companies, you know, they have some certain systems. And now they've already started selling that to international customers, which means that this is a real space economy and space trade because... You're not just, uh, you may use ISRO as a launch pad uh, where you use that as the first customer and get that heritage. And you can then use that as uh, the, uh, you know, like a branding because you've flown into space with these guys. And then uh, based on that, you can then um, build into the global space economy, right? So this is, uh, I would say, the way way forward. So there will be essentially two kinds of industries at the end. One will be the ones who are very deeply entrenched into manufacturing and services support to the Indian space program. And they may be happy doing that. Uh, and they may not take want to take the risk of diversifying into uh, putting in money into productizing certain things. Uh, but there will also be people who will want to productize certain things and want to take that risk and uh, grow to the international market. Thank you, Narayan. Uh, you mentioned how you know a lot of space enterprises essentially have good space infrastructure, they have good people, and they are a new, you know, 
new uh, bevy of enterprises who are sort of making end-to-end IP as well. Now, this looks like a fairly promising start for the Indian space ecosystem, but that brings me to my next question. If things are looking so good, what was the reason for the reforms introduced by the Indian government two years back in June 2020? What was the main impetus behind the reforms? Right. I mean, the thing is that according to international law, you still need to have a foundation through which uh, supervision needs to happen in the private sector. At the end, uh, you know, the liability falls on the government uh, at large as a nation for whatever happens. So every mature space economy and country around the world, uh, once they see a private sector maturing that is doing stuff outside of the public realm and public institutions, uh, they tend to put together a foundation in space policy and law uh, that allows the governance of the private sector in one way or the other. So uh, this, uh, you know, simply put, uh, you would want your private sector launch vehicle companies to have a certain insurance uh, so that if they fail and there's uh, damage to public property, for example, that it's covered uh, to a reasonable extent. Um, You know, if you want to have private sector companies launch satellites, you would want to provide them, um, you know, registration support, for example, for their satellites, uh, provide them with uh, frequency clearances and allocation of frequencies and all sorts of landing rights to downlink their data um, in any antennas that are uh, within the country and so all these sorts of things. So, um, so that allows uh, you know a few things to happen. Obviously, you know this uh, kind of a step uh, provides uh, investor confidence to a lot of the people who want to invest uh, their money in the country. Um, this shows that there is a, a very keen interest in the government to make sure that this sector is successful by them. Uh, you know, boosting that uh, by providing these. Uh, foundation in terms of the policy and law. In India, so far, there's been a discussion on the law aspect and there was a draft uh, you know, legislation, uh, but then we've not seen it go through the parliament yet. But then the, the policy is also now uh, done a couple of uh, rounds where we had individual policies being presented and now you know we have uh, a consolidation in terms of a more uh, loosely based uh, space policy uh, that provides uh, you know, a kind of a framework, I would say, that uh, allows these companies and these investors to get some uh, confidence and uh, work through uh, on all of these things. So it really, I would say, is just a a start uh, in that sense. And people have to go through this iteration. Um, And it's mostly like, you know, one step by the government and one step by the private sector at the end, because, uh, you know, both need to learn from each other at the end. You cannot uh, assume certain things will happen and create policies and laws accordingly. But at the same time, you would want to see progress from the private sector so that uh, there is more interest from the policy side as well, that uh, things need to be uh, moved forward. Right. So uh, but but yeah, I mean, I'm a strong believer that uh, these things are going to happen uh, at the end and uh, that policymakers in India do see a possibility for this to uh, rise above and uh, um, and then have a, a space economy that uh, kind of functions globally. So you mentioned about that there have been a series of uh, draft policies introduced by the government and they're going through several rounds of stakeholder feedback. Uh, one of the things which has also been introduced by the government is the announcement of a setting up of a body called InSpace, the Indian National Space Promotion and Authorization Center. So that is in the process of being set up. A chief has been announced. Uh, they have also established several di- directorates as well. 
so the question here is, it is supposed to be a single window clearance mechanism from the union cabinet note, which came out a couple of years back. Now, given your experience of dealing with the government, Narayan, do you believe the single window clearance mechanism will be a true blue single window clearance mechanism, or will it be something which is more going to be like a nodal agency that will essentially coordinate with different ministries and sort of, you know, come back to the applicant? Yeah, this is a very interesting and uh, obviously a very complicated question at the same time. Uh, I would believe that uh, this will, obviously, you know, it cannot be a very smooth process given the amount of stakeholders that there are in the government. So, uh, I mean, it would be kind of fantasy to think that overnight everything would be overhauled. Uh, At the end, you know, every department and every ministry in the government has its own interests and uh, has its own powers and uh, you know bringing in the, them together in a new body is not that easy in a country like india especially when people and secretaries are di- sitting out of different cities and you know they may not be talking to each other as often as much right so but yes uh, the intention is there uh, but the real question is you know how do you uh, mature this towards uh, the way forward because at the end um, when you look at a country like the US for example you essentially get uh, permissions from four different entities um, you have FCC that gives you licensing for the spectrum uh, you get uh, FAA if in case you are doing some sort of uh, demo flights and so on for them to authorize your uh, test flights and actual flights and then uh, you have NOAA that is giving you licenses for uh, imagery and uh, you know distribution of imagery, and then you have the commerce department that is really giving you um, you know support on exporting stuff and uh, licensing end user export and, and things like that. So uh, I think um, one of the experiences that I've seen many of the U.S. entrepreneurs mention is uh, their difficulty in interfacing with uh, four different agencies uh, for individually and uh, you know looking at uh, timelines that each of them have. Um, and uh, that becoming a problem for their uh, businesses. So I think um, the Indian experience is uh, simply based on uh, learning from such experiences from other countries and hoping that we can consolidate uh, a lot of them into uh, one window or one agency that can then do something around uh, these other agencies that are present. So you do have a, a replication of all of those four agencies in India in one way or the other. Uh, but the question really is, uh, you know, how can we help uh, entrepreneurs uh, through the new body in space to to uh, work with all of them together? So it might be that initially that uh, the secretaries and uh, the heads of uh, these uh, other agencies like the DOT, for example, uh, might be uh, might have to be worked uh, to to really empathize them with the problem and then uh, brought in and uh, the first one or two of them may be difficult in the process of establishing, but then once the process is set into place, it becomes easier for the other entrepreneurs and other companies to then uh, move things forward in one way or the other. So obviously, I would expect the initial days and uh, initially years even maybe to be a little bit rocky. Uh, but then, you know, nothing happens in the space industry in the short term. So you always need to plan something in the, in the longer term. So, uh, but this puts the newer uh, you know entrepreneurs who want to come and come in uh, on a path that uh, makes it very easy for them to go ahead and do things Narayan, one of the uh, changes which has been introduced by the government has been the new geospatial policy as well you know but then there's also the fact that in space was set up and even new space india limited has been doing fairly well as far as getting mandates are concerned 
Which is the one change which you think has been the biggest change in the last five years? Is it the announcement of reforms, which are still in draft stage, but the intention is there, as you put it? So what is the biggest change which has taken place in the last five years regarding the Indian space ecosystem, which could be seen as a positive sign for many uh, for the various stakeholders? I think the most biggest change is actually investor interest in, in the Indian space economy. Uh, at the end of the day, if you don't have investor interest, uh, you don't get to do anything. You don't get to do reforms. You don't get to build companies. You don't get to generate employment and uh, nothing right at the end. So this means that you really, um, the one of the things that happened uh, is, you know, for the last 15 years or so, uh, there was not really so many investors who were really interested in the space uh, domain in any case at the end. Um, I mean, you look at uh, the defense economy in India, for example, is uh, I would argue that maybe the space economy in India has much more investor interest today than the defense economy uh, to a large extent. Right. So uh, when it comes to actual product building uh, at the end, not just uh, not manufacturing or so on. Right. So this is where I think there's a lot of change. Obviously, today, there's even companies that have attracted uh, foreign direct investment in the country. That's a very big change. And, you know, ISRO itself is talking about uh, an FDI policy that will promote even further investment uh, and so on. Uh, So, I mean, 10 years ago, if you wanted to raise even angel funding, it was uh, extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, Today, you know, there are companies that have gone on to raise um, tens of millions of dollars. And obviously, the next future is space uh, with, you know, by its nature for companies that want to establish uh, rockets or satellites they will need not just tens, but hundreds of millions of dollars. So that is the next thing, I would say, where uh, the things that have already happened, uh, it might lead to a follow-up investment by international investors who would see the opportunity and you know have uh, a Tiger Global or, or Sequoia or somebody you know, lead uh, around. That's not just uh, you know 10 or 20 million, but look at uh, some of the mature companies raising hundreds of millions so to for them to scale to a, to a reasonable level and to be competitive kind of globally right so that is the natural trajectory i see with a, with a lot of the companies that are going to be uh, successful here and um, at the end uh, you know uh, that's one of the most important metrics uh, when you see a, a sector mature uh, it's purely based on what is the investor interest because that's the highest risk appetite metric that you would then see as a, a sector maturing and uh, uh, an opportunity, you know, uh, being present. So clearly, there has been a surge in uh, investor interest in the Indian space sector, and as you mentioned, it's happened in the last few years only. Why do you think that is? The reforms are still in a very nascent stage, but I think the investor interest sort of predates it by a, uh, at least a couple of years. Why do you think the investors uh, started investing in the Indian space ecosystem before the before the Indian space reforms were announced? I mean, it is natural that uh, people who are believers uh, in the sector and the potential, um, they think that obviously there is going to be reform once there's some maturity in a particular product or a service. I mean, you look at not just the space economy, you look at, uh, you know, e-commerce, you look at uh, all of these ride sharing things and, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, the sharing model economies that are out there and so on. I mean, it it's very common that uh, nobody has a law in place for something that has not been created at the end so or a policy in place right so you can't create policies for things that are not present in the society at the end 
so you uh, you then read what is happening in the society and dynamically kind of create policies and laws that then uh, balance out and give a platform and at the same time help a, the government govern the whole thing and possibly collect taxes at the end right so that's a natural trajectory for any sector at the end um, but obviously the first few investors that they were present you know people like uh, speciale invest and you know all of these other guys who really taken a risk in that sense because they really stepped in at a time that almost nobody was uh, that keen on on the sector and there's a bunch of those kinds of investors uh, who stepped in at a time when they believed that there's these companies can grow and this sector can mature but you know that's uh, the the risk profile that they were ready to go ahead with and they believed uh, in the sector and they believed that they could push for reforms once some of these companies show some progress uh, at the end so uh, you always need somebody somebody like that you know at the end uh, who who takes that level of risk uh, at the end so some according to some of the latest figures i've been uh, chatting with some of the people at inspace as well that uh, they mentioned to me that more recently that they have uh, recognized 175 uh, space startups in india uh that is very interesting because at the end it shows uh, how much interest there is uh in the whole thing obviously i mean my my guess would be that about 80% of these companies are all downstream companies uh that are uh, doing something with satellite data or uh, uh you know position navigation or timing or some other applications in satcom and so on uh maybe about 20 25% of them maybe doing upstream related work which is, has to do with something related to manufacturing satellites or rockets or ground systems and things like that so that would be my guess in terms of the split uh but you know at the end um, you look at these numbers uh, it's um, very interesting that uh, we have very good parallels with what is happening in china for example the chinese space economy opened up in 2014 and since then um, you know they have probably raised uh, at least Uh, about uh, 25 times more money than indian companies have uh, at this time so uh, but it's interesting that uh, you know the, i've not really seen so much of uh, a vocal support by the government uh, by the chinese government um, you know to the private sector as much as i've seen the indian government say uh, about the indian space sector right so uh, so it's a very interesting time i would say and also indian companies benefit uh, with the current uh, geopolitical environment uh, you know being able to do business more easily with anybody around the western world uh, with the space economy opening up uh, and you know people not having problems with uh, buying products and services uh, based on uh, you know being uh, companies being in india for example and you know there are other models that can be emerging and are emerging as well so for example uh, we see a german company forming a joint venture in india and uh, producing uh, you know in uh, looking at production of uh, satellites in amdavad for example and we see more and more people looking at pos- having possibly an offshore development center in india um, given the the labor market changes in europe and and us uh, so there are all kinds of other things that can also happen that um, increases the the potential uh, you know of uh, what is happening not just the startup world you can go beyond the startup world towards the uh, you know odc world of the big corporates or uh, you could look at uh, jvs for manufacturing and so there are many things that may emerge and will emerge uh, you know in the coming years
That's a really interesting answer, Narayan. You spoke about how you know a few investors in the beginning sort of placed a bet on the Indian space ecosystem, and then they developed products that were mature enough to sort of you know bring in a regulatory regime, which further gave confidence to investors to sort of put more money in. So that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, I just want to transition here to the uh, you know New Space India Limited. Recently, it's been in the news because it has uh, reached an agreement with OneWeb to launch their satellite constellations. Do uh, you think this is a sign of things to come for new space, uh, is, or is this like a one-off thing, or are we likely to see more such deals being struck? I mean, it completely depends now on um, a little bit of uh, you know how much availability of launches are available from India. The traditional bottleneck has been the capacity for um, ISRO and the industry to be able to produce uh, a large number of rockets a year. So typically, you know, there's been, I would say, you know, four to six PSLVs being produced a year. Maybe one of the years they managed to do seven or eight, uh, but it may be one of the biggest outliers in, the, in terms of the years. So when you look at uh, the international domain today, in fact, uh, I'm here in, a, in Portugal at a conference and uh, one of the things that came up was uh, how now the Europeans have pulled back on all the launches from Russia. And because of that, uh, they have a satellite sitting in their shelf and they're desperate in uh, finding a, a launch slot. And in fact, a few people came up to me and said, uh, can you please help us uh, you know, find a, a slot on the Indian rocket? Uh, because it still remains to be one of the most reliable ones around the world. Um, and then, you know, still relatively is a low cost, uh, you know, rocket, uh, you know, when you compare it. And uh, that means that there is um, going to be all of this demand that comes uh, from uh, the Russian vehicle not being uh, used anymore by the international market. And it's also a good timing that... Uh, the NSIL guys and the ISRO have opened up the production of the launch vehicle to be done by the industry. Now, the real question is obviously, how do they transition and uh, provide all the knowledge and uh, the documentation and uh, the facilities and all of these things to the private sector and how quickly that can happen uh, in a way that uh, the reliability of the vehicle uh, remains to be consistent and uh, you know they can move forward to have a plan in which uh, they can possibly even if they double the frequency uh, to in which you know how they can uh, launch that in itself will bring uh, quite a lot of potential i would say uh, at the end so that's an interesting part and obviously now the real question that comes up is also what happens to the launch economics in itself because um, at the end there's uh, an interesting you know, theory in, in the industry, right? Because they have some of the smaller rockets, including companies like Agnikul and Skyroot, uh, they believe that uh, uh, dedicated launches uh, that can go into certain specific orbits uh, and for a customer to also not wait for a bigger rocket like PSLV um, is something in demand in the industry. Uh, but there's also a number of people in the industry who believe that uh, uh, people will not care so much about uh, waiting around because the price of the launch uh, also matters uh, at the end, because typically smaller rockets tend to cost three times, four times the price of a, a larger rocket. And when you add up uh, numbers, they, the numbers do add up significantly for a, a number of companies. So it's an interesting time to see what would happen with uh, with all of this uh, in the future. 
but then you know that's just uh, the way the industry works and that's how uh, competing interests work at the end uh, but the overall good thing is that uh, it's it's a good sign for the indian industry in any case uh, be it for the, either the people who are doing the pslv production or you know some of these other startups that are looking at uh, having their own launch vehicles in any case you know the the sector and the the folks who are behind one of these things as the industry matures will uh, benefit in one way or the other that was going to be my next question you know recently news broke about how hl and lnt have backed the contract for developing the pslv uh, i guess the the tangential question to this particular observation is which other areas do you see isro sort of in outsourcing uh, so far, the construction of the PSLV and the manufacturing of the PSLV will be outsourced. Do you see ISRO ceding more space in other areas as well? Yeah, I mean, this is again, uh, you know, it really is a question of, um, I would say, leadership at the end um, and a little bit of uh, repositioning and refocusing of the organization. So uh, one of the things that uh, really needs to go down as a message is, uh, you know, ISRO really needs to be a research organization, not, not a production organization uh, at the end. And, you know, for the last uh, 10 years or so, there have been really a lot of the production organization rather than more of the research organization. So the real message that has to go down down the pyramid of people working uh, within ISRO is that uh, they need to refocus themselves in a lot of uh, research and uh, do, I mean, have a significant number of uh, scientists work on uh, uh, research rather than overseeing production uh, of routine things uh, at the end. And that's when the taxpayer also benefits. That's when the industry also benefits. That's when everybody benefits at the end. Uh, but then, you know, it's a, almost a seismic uh, shift in the mindset because uh, it's not easy when you're doing something and tomorrow you're said, uh, you know, if you don't have to do this, do something else now. Um, so, uh, so that's, an, uh, that's one of the cultural changes that needs to happen. And, uh, you know, that needs, uh, uh, a very high level of leadership, uh, to, to move that and, uh, to, to have the organization, uh, kind of refocus towards, uh, some longer term goals, uh, as well. So, uh, it really is a question of, uh, you know, how do you appraise the government to also give you funding for, such longer term research objectives at the end and at the same time uh, you involve the industry in making sure that the routine requirements that are based on uh, routine spacecraft and launch vehicles are uh, going to be done by them so it needs to go side by side at the end so if there are uh, certain technologies that uh, isro can identify saying that uh, the next 25 year horizon uh, in technologies, uh, in spacecraft and in launch vehicles and in ground systems and other things uh, will be these things. Um, they can then present it uh, to the government in uh, one form or the other, saying that uh, if India needs to be competitive in space in the next 25 years, these are the critical technologies that we see emerging and these, is, these are the places where we, in which we need to invest, start investing bit by bit and uh, have that matured. So I would argue that uh, that sort of a vision needs to uh, be put in place where um, an internal roadmap that is then generated and, uh, you know, also put together with a, a kind of a monetary requirement 
for all of them to be uh, you know matured uh, needs to be put together and then obviously they've also done this with the PSLV and so on and they've tried to do the um, manufacturing of the satellites with um, some of the industry manpower supplied by uh, you know companies like uh, Alpha Design and so on uh, manufacturing those satellites in ISRO facilities but then you know that is not of very high value because um, if you uh, just replace your manpower with the industry manpower uh, it's like a race to the bottom because uh, you're simply asking people to pay people uh, as less as possible to then get them uh, the contract at the end. So it becomes like uh, whoever pays the least gets a contract because it's a labor contract and it's not a, a contract to actually engineer anything at the end. So uh, so this is where I think incentives uh, also kind of need to, need to change uh, as such. So... Um, and then it's also a little bit of uh, an onus on uh, industry as well to to show the appetite that uh, they are willing to invest and they're willing to take a risk at the end. Um, I mean, we have seen some interesting developments with uh, you know companies like uh, Data Patterns and uh, Paras and others going public. Um, there may be other companies out there who are interested in uh, you know going public uh, uh, when the market settled down a little bit more after the you know this post-war thing. Uh, that may actually also create some of the impetus for um, existing SMEs to to have the kind of the monetary backbone for them to uh, take these kinds of uh, risks and say that we're ready to you know support uh, the space program in one way or the other. So uh, there are other options, you know, so of these kinds uh, that that may emerge uh, at the end. It could also be that uh, somebody sees it uh, from the private equity side at some point of time, saying, you know, I see some opportunities here that this could scale so every option is kind of open uh, at the end because ultimately there is demand uh, there is um, you know one way or the other people are finding ways uh, to either work with this row or work directly to work uh, towards b2b and b2c solutions so it then uh, just depends on you know what you want to do you want to work with somebody like an isro and uh, have a much more stable but uh, you know longer term business development process uh, or or you want to take the risk uh, to do something very b2b and uh, something very global or b2c or so on so it then falls on the entrepreneur and falls on the the company uh, to move forward but the the message is really that the opportunity is there and it's simply a question of do you have like the skill set and the team and the backing so a few things stand out in that answer. Uh, you know, you mentioned words like incentives being provided to companies and investment being a priority. Of course, for that to happen, these companies have to be mature in the first place. And you mentioned how there has to be a monetary requirement, ideally for them to be identified as being mature companies. So I guess the question is this, you know, certain sectors like the semiconductor sector have focused from a very dedicated vision. You know, you have the design linked incentive schemes, you know, whereby Companies at a very early stage are given seed funding to the tune of 15 crore rupees. Would a dedicated vision for the space sector also be idealistic? Is that something which would be on the wish list of uh, of space startups in India? I mean, it's uh, the wish list is very simple, I would say, for the space sector. Uh, I would argue that uh, I'm a, generally I'm not a very big believer in uh, government uh, giving direct money to anybody. Um, it often, you know, leads to uh, almost bad outcomes very often. Um, I mean, one of the examples is uh, something like uh, 
you know, SBIR and STTR in the U.S., for example, uh, people always quote that, oh, there's SBIR in the U.S. and a lot of these companies get SBIR and all these things. I mean, recently there's somebody who put out a study saying that uh, the same companies tend to get the SBIR and live off of it for the entire life of the company uh, without that going anywhere as a product. So you just become a lobby group of uh, a com- company, uh, you know, who's uh, lobbying the same uh, research institution in the system and uh, you know you're just using your social capital to then say please give, keep giving me these uh, free money that i'll just keep uh, using to do some research and then shelf it every time and then i'll apply for a new one and apply for a new one so um, yeah so you know these are bad outcomes uh, for the society uh, at the end and uh, uh, so i'm not really a big believer in that i'm a big believer in um, you know uh, basically uh, procurement uh, being opened up in the space industry because at the end um, if you open up demand uh, that's when you incentivize people to to invest and compete at the highest level so uh, for example right if uh, isro tomorrow says that uh, uh, we believe that um, you know uh, medium resolution imagery is something that the industry can uh, provide us we don't want to be building uh, medium resolution satellites because uh, it's something that is easily be you know so people can do it uh, at this time and isro can focus on very high resolution uh, satellites and we are happy to procure uh, any imagery of the uh, order of 1 meter to 5 meter or something like that and uh, they can put out a tender saying that um, you know if uh, we are going to procure a few million square kilometers of area of this and a specification saying this should be whatever xyz specification at the end and whoever is able to do that you know uh, can then fly those missions and we are going to support them uh, in one way or the other right and they can select two or three vendors at the end uh, to have um, you know constant availability of the imagery for the end use at the end and that you know will incentivize a lot of investment it will invest uh, incentivize a lot of companies to take the risk and compete at the end it's one of the ways in which you actually uh, allow ip creation and uh, competing ideas to then look at uh, uh, you know producing all of these things right so then people may have different concepts then they may have different uh, models and they may have uh, interesting ideas as to how you can do that at the lowest cost to be able to be you know the most competitive at the end and obviously the taxpayer benefits uh, with all of that competition uh, at the end so i would say the top one reform that they can do uh, and nothing beyond that needs to be done which is uh, simply saying i want to innovate uh, procurement and uh, i'll simply look at uh, how do i now uh, find ways in which uh, if not an investment of uh, hundreds of crores if it is in the range of tens of crores for example um you know how do i uh, make sure that uh, i have some uh, you know points or some areas in which i can now uh, provide a tender where it incentivizes industry to then invest and compete with each other and build that capability and this is a you know a classic example for example right so uh, that i think uh, would really skyrocket uh, the investment and the interest landscape uh, for the space sector. But just to play the devil's advocate here, Narayan, you mentioned that the government should probably focus more on procurement reforms as opposed to being a, a seed funder. But to develop IP, wouldn't it be ideal if there is, you know, some funding to begin with by the government? Because uh, 
venture capital funds might come in at a later stage when they can sort of pick up where the government left off. Wouldn't that be something which the government could possibly explore, seed funding for companies which need to build their own IP? Yeah, I mean, yes, In a, if it is available, why not? But, uh, you know, the real question is, um, you know, at the end, you, in a space industry, in the space sector, there's much more than money that you can give as a government. You know, you can give access to facilities, you can give access to experts, you can give, uh, you know, uh, you can give uh, people a place to, um, you know, like test and uh, if they are building rockets or so on, give them access to uh, places where it can blow things up uh, and, you know, not have any problems and all of these other things, right? I mean, these are going to cost a lot more than a few crore rupees uh, in investment at the end. So there's uh, the the impact of all of that for a company is much more bigger than uh, than just saying I'm going to give you one crore here or fifty lakhs here or and then um, I mean fifty lakhs for a satellite builder is is almost no money, right? You can pay uh, like uh, five engineers uh, a year salary at the end. So um, you know, I mean it's a, it's a question of uh, what creates the highest impact. Uh, at the end. So, uh, I mean, I would uh, look at a possibility of, uh, for example, every national and state uh, own laboratory and testing facility uh, brought together in a centralized platform where anybody can uh, get access to it, book the facility and, you know, maybe have an insurance scheme for, to cover any liabilities and damages that happen at that place and, you know, incentivize the industry to use those facilities. Or, you know, the government can also set up dedicated facilities for uh, the industry to use, uh, which, you know, is too expensive for the industry to invest by itself or for these companies to invest by itself. I mean, that's a better service at the end than incentivizing each company with some money at the end, right? So you might have uh, people who want large thermovacuum chambers, uh, you know, vibration facilities, um, you know, uh, radiation testing facilities, facilities. um, you know, radio testing facilities uh, with large anchor chambers and so many other things that are really expensive, right? So if you give somebody 50 lakhs or one crore, they may say, oh, like I want to buy four of these things and that's it. The money is done. Uh, so that was uh, good enough. And none of the other companies benefit by that uh, then because there's some, maybe some other companies come to the same conclusion that we'll use the same money to replicate the same thing again. And so it really is a question of, um, uh, how do you invest into something, especially in a country like India, where the resource problem is so high that once a government is really interested in investing something, it should have an impact beyond a single company at the end, right? So it should have a, a impact on the community uh, level of those companies at the end. And uh, it's the same thing with uh, expertise, for example, right? So we, if you look at uh, how the European Space Agency works with a number of their startups, they have um, you know dedicated hours that they allocate per company where the company can uh, you know have some time with an expert that they want to talk to. And uh, they don't need to pay that expert. You know, they, they, the expert just gets paid the normal salary, but then a part of their working hours is then said, okay, you're not working for ISRO now, but you are simply helping this company mature. And so, uh, so when there is real expertise in ISRO, a lot of the startups tend to use uh, retired personnel because that's when they can easily engage with them. But then there's also people who are working on the ground today and they're working on uh, critical things uh, and they have a lot of expertise to share. 
at the end and why not actually open them up to supervise and uh, uh, give that kind of a support uh, to the companies saying that you know we'll give you 100 hours uh, a year for example uh, per company and any company can come come and you know they can uh, ask for the kind of expertise that uh, they want and we will allocate that uh, person and they can you know you can interact with them and uh, make sure that you are successful based on their uh, expertise at the same time so uh, there's many ways to think uh, when it comes to how do you incentivize and it's really a question of uh, uh, looking at um, the indian context because the problem is that i find it very difficult that uh, and also uneasy that um, people simply want to replicate a lot of the western models in india uh, we have to you know know that uh, our reality is a little bit different at the end and our strengths are slightly different and uh, we have to work off of our strengths and then uh, simply replicating models uh, from the western world uh, in an indian context uh, may not be it may create some uh, you know i would say like localized and short term impact uh, but in the long term uh, a lot and in terms of long term impact and larger impact there are many things that can uh, be done given what we already have Thank you, Narayan. With that answer, we have reached the end of our podcast. Uh, you know, thank you for being with us here today. And uh, it was a brilliant podcast. Uh, you know, all the answers were really illuminating and really brought to light all the key issues which are currently, you know, uh, making news in the Indian space ecosystem. So thank you once again. Thank you very much. Yeah. And thank you for having me uh, as well. And um, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk about, you know, what is happening in the Indian scene. I hope that... Uh, you know, many of your listeners um, review what is happening uh, in the scene. And uh, if one way or the other they want to be involved, they are free to just contact me. And I'm also uh, happy to put them to anybody that they want to talk to in the industry. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.